All right, we're looking at 2 Timothy. So if you want to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy, we're going to be in chapter 4. And before we start, let us ask the Lord's blessing on this time. Father, thank you for your word. For this reminder, again, this morning, of the importance of it and the responsibility that you hold out to those of us who stand in the pulpit to be sure that we are preaching it, and sticking by the truth in it, not to alter it or to mess it up. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for stooping down, as it were, to our level to relate to us, to communicate with us, and to work in our hearts and lives for the purpose of bringing honor and glory to your name. I ask your blessing upon this time this morning. I pray that it will be the Savior who is exalted and magnified, and I ask it in his name with thanksgiving. Well, Paul is uh, writing Timothy, and he's been encouraging him about the ministry and the things that he is to be focusing on. Paul has been is in prison. He is suffering in prison. He is not going to escape from this particular imprisonment. Um, he doesn't have too long to live. He's in a very uncomfortable and difficult set of circumstances. He has suffered quite a bit. He's had some close associates like Demas that have actually forsaken him and walked away and left him. Others who have worked with him or ministering in other areas. Luke is with him, and he is remembering a young man that he has worked with. His name is Timothy. He's used Timothy quite a bit, and he is writing Timothy now because he has seen Timothy sort of becoming a little bit shy and timid in the area of ministry, backing off from some of the pressures that have been on him. <coughs> And so he is writing Timothy kind of maybe a last appeal, uh, although he doesn't know for sure how much longer he has. He's going to be, he's, we'll see it next time. He'll be asking Timothy to bring some books and other stuff and a code because the situation he's in, it's easy to be uncomfortable and you need something to keep you warm in prison. And so he's, he's asking Timothy to hurry up and come to him and visit. But at this point, he is talking to him about the word. And uh, so we'll begin in chapter four, I'm sorry, chapter, yeah, chapter four, verse one. And uh, Paul writes this, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. We'll stop there just a minute. We've already looked at this. Uh, I just, it, it impresses me the importance of this challenge that Paul is giving Timothy and what he is relating to him. I, when I was going through this and thinking about an incident that occurred, some of you may know about this. If you're, when I drive home to Fairview, I go down to Mills Gap Road, and there used to be a deli there that had a marquee or sign up, and on the sign it said, your wife called and said, don't forget the milk. And it just made me think that many times, I know I've had that occasion in my life that uh, my wife would send me on a mission, coming home from work, stop and get the bread or milk or eggs or something like that. And uh, 
I've had um, others I've worked at Lowe's at his cashier, and I've had uh, wives come through there with a shopping list of things that their husbands have asked them to pick up there at Lowe's to get them. They're on a mission to do something. And in each case, there is a sort of a responsibility of being accountable. And you go home and your wife is going to say, did you get the milk? Oh, I forgot the milk or I forgot the bread or something like that. I just got a card in the mail from the government. In fact, I've gotten three mailers now to remind me to do the census. It's come out and I've done that. You're required by law to do it and I've done it, sent it off and stuff. But there is that accountability there, just like there is the accountability of us pay our taxes. We have that responsibility. And uh, so, but here is a challenge that Paul is giving Timothy. And it's not just a challenge, it's a very serious challenge. He says, I solemnly charge you. And he holds that accountability up. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. He is the one who's going to be. He was judging the living and the dead, both by his coming back to this planet and by his establishment of his kingdom. He is the sovereign. He is the Lord. And that is an ultimate, ultimate accountability. And so he is holding Timothy responsible for that. So he's telling him, I'm charging you to be sure that you stick to the book. Preach the word. That is a major charge in your life to do that and to stick to the book. And not to confuse it or not to mix it up or do anything like that. Then he goes down in verse 2. He says, to be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Um, to be ready means to take advantage of every opportunity, to stick to the book, not to deviate, if you will, from... Um, the words, the truth, the doctrine, the thoughts that are there, not to add to it, not to take from it, but to stick by it, because it is God's word, and it's really, really important. I'm thinking of Psalm 19, part of Psalm 19, you're familiar with that psalm, that says the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul or feeding the soul, it is that law which gives food and nourishment and strength to the soul, the spiritual life. He says the test, talking about the word of God and using these different terms, the testimony of the Lord uh, is sure, making wise the simple. God's word gives wisdom, wisdom for living, wisdom for pleasing God, wisdom to know how to live. The precepts of the Lord are right. They bring joy to the heart, rejoicing the heart. Boy, we need that in a day and time like this with this virus. Read your Bible, spend time in the Word. The commandment of the Lord is, is pure, enlightening the eyes. God's Word and God's commandment gives insight to us and direction to us. The fear of the Lord is clean. God's Word teaches us who we are and who's, who, who God is and helps us have that proper perspective with Him. And He says that it is eternal. Think about it, the eternality of God is the one thing that separates him from everything else because everything else is temporal. Everything else um, is dependent upon him. He and he alone has that power of being in himself. And uh, God's word is that eternal aspect of his, commitment, uh, his person. The judgments of the Lord are true 
they are altogether righteous. They are right. They are correct. Um, they are more to be desired than gold. They are valuable. I'm going to stop there. The point that I'm trying to make here is that God's word impacts our life, gives us joy, gives us strength, gives us direction, gives us purpose, gives us hope. And so we want to be ready to communicate that. Um, you probably have had the, the situation in which somebody would you would talk to somebody and they would raise an issue or ask a question and you you answered maybe you said something but you later reflected back on it and you said i wish i had said this or i wish i had said that and you think about things after the fact i've done that many times yes. and uh, mm -hmm. god knows he's sovereign and stuff like that but it, it's a reminder to us for us to do to be faithful in learning the word and growing the word so that we can have answers to those who ask us the reason for the hope that we have within us so that we can be able to tell people about who the Lord is, who we are. It's that lack of knowledge that is a problem. You remember Paul said in Romans 3, that none righteous, there are none who understand. That, that we kind of gloss over that, but that's pretty important. We, it's, there's no one that understands really who God is. There's no one that understands who they are. We don't really understand our own hearts. And so we have this, this void of real understanding, and we get that understanding when we go to the Word, and the Spirit of God kind of opens the Word to us. So he says here to be ready in season, out of season, to be ready when it's opportune, when the time is, is right and it's an opportune moment. And when it's not, that's one of the advantages of this. I, at least I'm thinking it's one of the advantages of having these, uh, having these business cards printed up with the uh, invitation of Bible study. Is when you're talking to people, if they are searching or they're interested at all and they know you, and you just give them a card and say, We're going to be having a Bible study. Go to that website, you can find out the time and place. We'd like to have you. And I'm, I am, um, I'm anticipating the number of people coming. I don't have it, I don't know. But people are searching, and especially in a time like this, it'll give us an opportunity in a casual atmosphere among other believers without being the focal point of the spotlight of people who are fucking their tongues and saying, you're doing something you shouldn't be doing, but they're part of a group that we can witness to them and share with them, and maybe they can come to know, hear the word, and know the Lord. We're praying about that. God does love them, even those that may not be lovely, and there are some people that I will invite that they came in just by themselves and sat down. You may not feel comfortable sitting beside them, but the Lord loves them. Be careful. And uh, so, and, and uh, we can see when the gospel gets hold of a person's life, what does Paul say? Uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for deliverance. You think about God's power being displayed, and we, we make a light of that message don't make light of it because the gospel message is very very powerful to change lives and to change hearts and so we want to be faithful to do that so uh, the, he says be ready in season out of season and then he uses just a couple of words and I'm, i am aware that we've already gone over this i'm going to be quick but he says first of all that it reproves or remember we said it means it brings conviction and uh, it's used in the um, Texas Receptus, it's not in the, the Nestle text, but it's in the Texas Receptus of John uh, 8 9, where the woman was taken in adultery. And uh, 
the Pharisees were there to stone her and Jesus said that the man without sin cast the first stone. And then this text says, and they, when they, and they which heard it being convicted, that word convicted is this word reproved. They heard it being convicted by their own conscience put out one by one. That's what the idea of reprove is. It means bring conviction, bring conviction uh, to us of sin. Remember that uh, when we looked at Isaiah, we saw that sin was that which separates between man and God. That's what Isaiah said. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Sin will separate you between you and your God. And the, the word brings conviction on that. The word, if you remember the illustration that we used some time ago of Josiah the king, when the word of God was discovered in the temple and was brought and they opened it up and read it and he tore his clothes. Here's the king taking the most humble position at all, putting ashes on his head and tearing his clothes and humbling himself. And of course, when the king does that, the entire country is aware of that. The entire nation is aware of it. This is front page news and it spreads like wildfire. But what the king was doing is he's saying, God's word says we're in trouble. And it really, we need to really repent of our sin. God's word can do that, and that's very important. So the first thing in taking the word and applying the word is it does bring conviction of sin. The second thing that he uh, has in that text that it can do is it can rebuke uh, or bring reprimand. You probably don't remember this, but I mentioned that the word rebuke there does not necessarily mean that they have sinned, it's just a way of saying, bringing some kind of rebuke. It was used to Peter, to the Lord Jesus, when the Lord Jesus said he was going to go to the Jerusalem and suffer many things, and Peter took him aside and rebuked him. Used the same word. And uh, that, that obviously the Lord was right and Peter was wrong, but Peter felt like that he was having to correct the Lord. One of the interesting things about that word rebuke, and I think I mentioned this as well, but it, it really impressed me, is a person who is rebuking another person has some um, air of authority over somebody else that they are rebuking. They are just, they are, that's what's so funny with Peter. He was, here is this young man taking the Lord of glory aside and rebuking the Lord Jesus. And Peter's just a piece of trash. He's just an apostle, just a man, a sinner, and he's rebuking the Lord of glory. But he's, he's, He's trying to correct the Lord. You can't possibly go to Jerusalem. Stuff. You can't possibly do that. The same word is used of the parents, uh, of the disciples, when the parents brought their children to Jesus to be blessed. And the disciples rebuked the parents for doing that. And they were taking that kind of authority, uh, and they were using what was the authority they thought they had to correct the parents. And we would we would do that. We have somebody, a baby in here in, crying in the church. Sometimes we would kind of correct them gently and say, you know, can we do something about that? We wouldn't do it in a, a mean way or whatever, but there's that sense. You know what I'm saying? Is that sometimes um, children can be a distraction. I understand what they're doing, but Jesus was right they were wrong because he loves the kids. That's, uh, that's one of the verse, main verses for child evangelism and fellowship is that Jesus said, let the children come unto me. And Bartimaeus, the blind man that was sitting by the uh, streets of from Jericho going up to Jerusalem. Uh, he and his friend were there, and here is the disciples and Jesus, and they were going to Jerusalem, big crowds that were going to Jerusalem to Passover. Jesus is talking and teaching and giving them great wisdom there, just 
enjoying all these things he was saying, and this is blind Bartimaeus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And they say, shut up, be quiet, push him inside, get him. They were exercising some degree of authority, and it, you're interrupting the Lord's teaching, get him out of here, and stuff. And Jesus finally stopped and said, what do you want me to do to you? And he healed, healed him. And actually, I maybe he became a believer because his name is mentioned in the scripture. But the idea that I'm trying to make here is the word means to rebuke or to correct or, or to uh, re, to reprimand, and it's appeared appears in the Gospels only two times does this word appear in the rest of the New Testament. One of them is in Jude, where Jude mentions it. Um, uh, Jude mentions that Michael the archangel disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, and he did not pronounce a railing of judgment against him, but he said to the devil, the Lord rebuke you. So one of the references has to do with the Lord rebuking the devil, and the other one is in our text. Yeah. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, it's interesting that the Lord doesn't tell us to go around in our own authority to rebuke people, but he does use it in this passage in connection with the word God. So if we are going to be able to do any kind of corrective reprimand, it is only in connection with the word of God. It is because, listen, the reason this is a problem for you is because God says A, B, and C. So we can bring the word of God. I can't, I can't stand up here and rebuke you on my own authority and, uh, be, and be biblical, but I can say, this is what God's words. I can tell you you should read your Bible. I can tell you you should pray. The Bible says it. you should talk about that. But I can't tell you that you have to wear a top, for example. The Bible doesn't say anything about that or whatever. Do you see what I'm saying? And uh, so I think I think it's very, to me, it was insightful when I discovered that, that that word is only used in the Gospels here in these illustrations of people and the Lord a couple of times. And the only place it's used insofar as church ministry is concerned is where in connection with preaching of the word and uh, that be ready to preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, when it's convenient, not convenient, to reprove and to rebuke in connection with what the word says. You understand what I'm saying? It's, I think that's really important. And then the third word there, um, the word exhort just has to do with making a strong appeal or plea, almost, almost begging. Uh, because of what the God says and because of what the word says, you can beg with people. And if there are people that you love and care for, and there are, I have, I have lots, of, lots of friends that I care for, and, and I talk to them. I don't get down on my knees and beg, but it has to do with making them appeal or whatever. And so it says to, to make that appeal and just to plead with people, recognizing that people have to make choices and decisions and to, to work with them in the situations that they're in. And in all three of these things, these three areas that he's listing here, under the influence of the word, reprove, rebuke, and exhort, he adds to do it with patience and instruction. You see that in the text? Remember, we looked at two words having to do with patience. One means to be under the load, to stay under the pressure, to stay under the responsibility, not to cave or give in, to be steadfast in those things. But the other one has to do with the long suffering and has to do with people with patience with people. That's the word that's used here. You're saying when you're teaching, correcting, rebuking, encouraging, convicting, and you're doing it with people, be patient with people. That's what he's saying. Your, your patience, 
look, I am very stubborn, and I know you are too. And if if the Lord treated me um, as I deserved, I would be. I mean, he didn't, he has no responsibility whatsoever to share with me the gospel and to work with me and to work with me. And he has every right to say, I've talked with you three or four times. Get out. I don't have nothing to do with you. But he hasn't. He's been patiently and mercifully and graciously working my heart. And I know that he's done the same with you, right? And so I'm very thankful that God is a God of mercy and a God of patience, that he's long-suffering. He worked with me. I've done all kinds of, I used to smoke, smoke for 10 years, I used to party a bit, nothing severe, but things like that, that uh, and God was, I never ended up in a cornfield or anything like that, but I used to do some of these things. <laughs> but you know what, the Lord knocks on your door, he speaks to your heart and about the things that you do, and uh, he slowly gets through to my heart, he uses pressure, he uses a lot of things. We are, it's hard sometimes yeah, I pray for people that people that I love, I care for very much, and I pray for them, and I pray for things in their lives and habits that they have and their relationship with the Lord. And I want the Lord to just work right now. And I pray, and I get a phone call a few minutes later that tell me how they have just been been burdened about things that they're doing that are bad for their health or bad for their witness or testimony, and and uh, that they they need. But it doesn't slowly, slowly, slowly working, and that's because God. Um, in his providence, using a lot of things to answer the prayer. Not just this one, one thing that happens with a lot of pressure, a lot of things that work together, and a lot of different circumstances. And so, but he does answer prayer. And uh, one of the most encouraging things to me is in the book of Revelation, when um, the Lamb is standing before the throne and he takes the scroll, the seven seal scroll. And uh, he takes it in his hand, and he is found worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. One of the very, very first things that happens is the angel comes with the the uh, heart to sing praises to God and the incense of the prayers that have been offered over the centuries. And God is now, the first thing he's going to do is begin to deal with these prayers that have been offered over the centuries. That have, have not necessarily dormant, but he hasn't been able to answer them the way that he wants to answer them. Do it, do with that. That is very special. That's really special. God loves us, He cares for us. We have at our disposal a powerful, powerful weapon in prayer. I don't say weapon, but an access. It is an access. It isn't something, it isn't um well, anyway, it's it's very important. We have that 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 uh, powerful access to the Lord in prayer. And so he says, first of all. This teaching and reproving and instruction is to be done uh, there with patience and instruction. Teaching with doctrine. Notice the doctrine there. That's That has to do with the teaching. Because so much of the scripture has to do with the doctrine, the teaching. And it's interesting that the Bible, the, doctrinal, the doctrines, if you get out of the Bible, are not just listed on page 17, A, B, B, C, and D. But you read the Bible, and the more you read it, the more you discern what God is like, the more you discern what you're like. God has written it the way that he wants it to be written and understand it. And um, the more you read it, the more you study it, the more you dig into it, you, it's, like, it's like mining for gold or something. You dig, and you begin to, to, 
uncover these nuggets and these valuable truths and they begin to work in your life and your heart begins to, to change your life and change your heart. So that's what he's saying here, to take these things and to apply these as you're preaching the word. Now we want to come to the section that we're supposed to be in this morning, and that is verse 3. And uh, Paul, what Paul is doing here is in order to, to enforce the urgency, I think, to Timothy to preach the word, he reminds him that the time is coming when many will turn their focus away from the truth and embrace myths. In other words, this is, this is important, what I'm told you to do, because you're going to be faced with and you're going to confront with those that are departing, those that are leaving the truth. It's, it's really very important. And you're working with the church, and so you want to do everything you can to try to, to uh, hold on to the truth. And the first thing he deals with has to do, it seems to me here, with the whole area of sound doctrine. That's what he says, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. He stresses the need for them to endure sound doctrine. And sound doctrine is healthy doctrine. It's the it's uh, settling down, if you will, and the, the organization of the truths that Scripture teaches about God, about man, about sin, about life, about wisdom. Uh, and these things are very important. Paul says in, in the first chapter of 2 Corinthians, he tells Timothy to retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me. To retain is telling him to adhere to these things. The standard, if you remember we talked about it, is like it actually has to do with a mold. I think it was used of a horse's hoof in the ground which leaves that imprint. He's just saying retain the, the standard, the imprint, the, the, um, the teaching, the, the meaning, the substance of the doctrine. Don't let those things go. Don't get the doctrine and walk away from it. Let it work in your heart. Let, it, let the Lord use it in your life. Retain the, sound, the standard of sound words which you have heard from me, and faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Then he says this. He says, guard, set up a guard, set up a... a, a Someone that to protect us, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, that treasure, that ministry, the word of the responsibility to teach the word, which has been entrusted to you. So he's, he's telling Timothy, much has been given to you and it's been entrusted to you, which does remind us, doesn't it, that every single one of us here are indebted to other people who have sacrificed and witnessed and lived and prayed for us. We didn't just all of a sudden pop up as a believer like a seed in the ground, but there was much work, much prayer, much labor, perhaps many tears uh, that have been labor. I know that I've had people pray for me, and uh, I'm sure that my grandmother, I know that sometimes she wept. I don't know if she, I don't, I don't know all of that because she didn't tell me about it, but I do know that she was emotionally involved for me and my two sisters, and I'm very thankful for that. I've often thought, that just like it was with David, that the Lord would do some things in my life, and he would tell David, or he'd tell the descendants of David, I'm doing this for the sake of the father of David. I promised David some things, or I promised Abraham some things. What I'm doing in your life is because I'm keeping some promises to someone else, or I'm answering the prayers of someone else. And I think the Lord does that. I'm confident that the Lord has worked in my heart because of that very issue, that other people have prayed for me faithfully. I know my grandmother. For years, I remember she used to get up, and one of the things she used to do is take me back to the 
back of the house back there to the bathroom that looks out over the east where you see the sun rising. And she could point out, she said, the sun's coming up over there. And she'd watch it for years, come up from the sun and rotation of the year would progressively go up and then it would slowly go back as it would rise at the east. And uh, she would get up early in the morning and she would have her quiet time. She'd have her Bible there by the bed and she would read that time of prayer. And I know she prayed for me that I would come to know the Lord. And I found out later she also prayed that the Lord put me into the ministry. So God hears prayers. And it's really important that we understand that. And so um, he says here that, that he, he, uh, we, we are indebted to somebody else. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but want to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers and accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside the myths. He's talking about here that time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Sound doctrine, which we've been taught and learned from other people. We've gathered it from other people. Notice here also um, this passage that I was talking about in first in Second Timothy chapter one, where he says to um, to to um, guard through the Holy Spirit that which dwells in us, that treasure which has been entrusted to us, which we have received from others. So here's Paul. Paul is telling Timothy to um, to guard through the Holy Spirit. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but will want to have their ears tickled. I want you to, to uh, see one other thing uh, that he is stressing there that there are going to be difficult days coming. And as he talks about that they will not endure, I don't think he's I don't think he's talking about just the general tenor. I think that he's talking about specifically individuals in the church who will not endure. And uh, because we know that um, a genuine believer, a real believer, will endure to the end. We know that's one of the marks of a real believer. But there are many who, we think of the parable of the sower, and we think of the four soils, and of the four soils, only one soil represents genuine conversion. There are two that receive the word, and one of them, because of pressure, pressure, pressure persecution, other stuff, abandon the faith, and another one, because of wealth and, and the distractions of the world, uh, that comes in and chokes out the gospel, so it's not fruitful. There's only one that's real. And so uh, this is kind of a warning, isn't it, that in the church there could be those who are not genuine believers. That means that even possibly in this room this morning, that, that, that we might, there could be those here that are not genuine believers. Paul says, examine yourself that you be in the faith. And the idea is always be it's not just a one-time examine yourself and you say, oh yeah, I'm in the faith, and you walk away and forget it, but always be continually walk, looking at your life and you walk with the Lord to be sure that you're seeking to follow him. I do that, and I'll just be honest with you, there are times when I say, Lord, am I really saved? I mean, if I am really saved, but I look at what I just looked at, what I think at what I just thought, what I say or do what I just thought, and and uh, you, you understand what I mean? It's just... Examine your life and hold yourself accountable to the Lord because it's really, really important. I, I, I'm convinced I'm, I'm a believer, but I'm also recognized that there's a lot of things in my life that, that do not reflect the Lord as they should reflect. You understand what I'm saying? And so it's really important. And so in this passage here, and I kind of have to move on. In this passage, he says, when he talks about the time will come when they 
will not endure. These are false teachers he's talking about, and they will they are unbelievers and they're they are going to lead the church astray. So he says, be careful about that and uh, don't let them lead the church astray. Um, don't let them cause you to, to uh, abandon the truth. Um, and so Paul is just warning about that sound doctrine and sound truth. I'm kind of skipping over some stuff because I got so much stuff here. You, you'll be here sometime. Secondly, uh, notice that um, there are three things in this text that quickly that he talks about he says the time will come first of all when they will not endure which gives the idea that they're intolerant to biblical truth um sound doctrine healthy doctrine is good for growth and for our christian life titus says but as for you speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine and uh as i mentioned earlier first timothy 4 6 uh point all paul said Paul said to Timothy, in pointing out these things, you would be a good servant, a good minister of Jesus Christ, constantly nourished on the words of the faith, the words of the doctrine of the faith, and the sound doctrine which you have been following yourself. So, number one, one first problem here is there, there are those who are intolerant of the truth, that they don't want to hear what God says, they want rather to twist it around and make it say what they want it to say. Revelation and Deuteronomy both give warnings the readers not to add to or to take away from what God has said. It's easy to do that. And it, it, it's um, it's just a danger we can fall into because we can we can want the Bible to say something so bad. We sometimes can make it say that when we study the Bible and interpret it, we want to interpret the Bible to what the whole Bible said. So we want to compare scripture with scripture and let the scripture hold itself accountable and to kind of clarify these things for us. So the first thing is that they were they were intolerant to biblical truth. Secondly, uh, he says, but they're wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. In other words, being not only intolerant of biblical truth, but they uh, they are seeking speakers and teachers to confirm what they want to hear, to say the things they want to hear. And we are, I'm sure, aware that sometimes people don't like sin. They don't like to be preached about sin, or they don't like you to preach repentance. Um, I can remember when I was in California, John Crawford was telling me that he said when he first came into the ministry from the seminary, he had done a lot of study and research and preparation to deal with the liberal movement that was attacking the scripture, the inspiration of the scripture, and so on and so forth. And so he was sort of prepared to defend himself against that. But he said, I never thought that I would have to defend myself against the church. But he began to teach the Bible, what the Bible said about Jesus Christ and being born. Worship salvation was an issue that a lot of, quote, church people denied. And yet that's just basic salvation. Jesus Christ is not Lord, your Lord. He's not your Savior. He's got to be both of that. I was raised, I really truly early in my life, I believe that you could trust Jesus as Savior, but go and do what you want to do for years, and then later on accept him as Lord. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible, if you if you do that, then you're one of those, as uh, Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that the guys built two houses, one was on sand and one was on the rock, and the one that's on the rock is the one that's on the sand, and that's they not only hear but they obey the words that I've said. So it's really important. Jesus is Lord. He is a sovereign. 
he is almighty God, but he is our savior and he has come down to communicate with us and to pour his life out for us on the cross. And uh, so, you know, if, if God became man and he did, then he has a right to ask us to submit to him, to be in subjection to him and nothing over and over again, we are called his slaves, literally. It's not, it's not servant, it's slaves, and he is the master. And no man, Paul says, no Jesus said, you can, no man can serve two masters. And that's in the slave-master relationship. You're gonna, if you're a slave, you only have one master. you got to choose. You're going to love the one and turn your back on the other. That's just the way it is. And if we belong to the Lord, we're going to be loving him and turning our back on this. this. The world and the flesh and the devil and those kinds of things. And so here are those who want to have their ears tickled. They like what they hear with the certain speakers that tickle their ears. And so they don't like somebody telling them how they need to repent, or they don't like somebody telling them what they have to do with their, their money or their wealth. And they don't like somebody telling them uh, how they have to do um, what they need to do. What does the Bible say that, that we love? Uh, Darkness, people love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They want to stay in the darkness. They don't like this. So it's easy to do, to seek those that, that cater to us. So just when you're looking for things like that, trying to be biblically astute what you're, what you're looking for. Well, that's one of the reasons why I don't recommend much watching TV for your service and your teaching because a lot of times the preachers on TV are not sound. Some are, but a lot of times they're not. And then finally, not only is there that they resist biblical truth and they seek the teachers that cater to their own desires, but they abandon, it says that they abandon error. It says they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So this is uh, one of the scariest verses in the Bible for me. And uh, you've heard me talk about that. Um, and there is in that text both the active and the passive voice. The active voice in the grammar means that the subject is doing the action. The passive voice in the grammar means the subject is receiving the action. Both of those are in this text. The first one is the active voice. It says they will turn away. Here are these teachers, these people. They will turn away their ears from the truth. The second part of that verse is the passive voice. They have not, it looks like in the English that they turn away their ears from the truth. And it says that they turn aside to miss, but actually, in actuality, it's saying that they are given over to error or given over to miss. They decide to turn their eyes from the truth, and they are abandoned by God into error. You see what I'm saying? They're given over to that. They don't have that choice to make. They made their choice. Now they're being given over. God has made another choice for them. They're given over to error. And so let me just say this. You're not smart enough, and neither am I. To really know what God says and the truth of God by ourselves. You can't figure out uh, God's truth and God's word. That's what Paul said. They're none that understand. They're none that seek God. All the truth of science. We're spiritually dead. You who are dead, God made alive. Um, the natural man does not understand, cannot grasp the things of the spirit. They're foolishness to him. They are, these are things that are spiritually appraised. And so uh, we are at mercy before the Lord with what we know and how we are embracing these things. And so uh, we, we have to, to, when God begins to reveal things and show things to us, do you remember Peter, uh, when, when the Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus asked the disciples who the men say that I, the son of man, am? 
And Peter says, I was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, happy, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Flesh and blood did not give this to you, but my Father in heaven. What he's saying there is you didn't figure this out by your smart mind, but God showed it to you in your heart, which means you're blessed. Why are you blessed? Because you are the focal point of the work of my Father in heaven in your heart. God has a relationship with you, and he's teaching you in your heart, and you're receiving truth from him. You are happy. You are fortunate. You are blessed because God is showing those things to you. You are at the mercy of of all kinds of stuff, if God is not working in your heart to show you the truth. And so this verse is just telling us here that these people have turned away their ears from the truth, and they've turned aside to myths. Myths has to do with theories, with philosophies, with things that are theoretical, that's not the sound truth of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, uh, he says that in this world, in this life, we walk in the flesh. This is 1 Corinthians 10, 3 but we do not war, war according to the flesh. We are down here in the flesh, but we not. the warfare is not in the flesh. The weapons of our warfare, he says, they're not fleshly. We don't use bullets. We don't use physical handcuffs. Uh, but the weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Fortress is a castle that is set up to defend someone against an enemy. And... Um, so the, the, it says the weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful, and they are there, divinely powerful, to destroy fortresses where people have entombed or entrenched themselves against the truth with their error. He says we are destroying speculations. We are destroying philosophical and ideological fortresses. Uh, we are destroying those things um, with er and every lofty thing that's raised itself up Everything that's raised itself up against the knowledge of God. And here's what I'm saying. Or here's what the verse is saying. The battle here is not over a person's sexual orientation or a person stealing or lying. It's over the theories, the theological or the lack of theological, the myths, the theories that they have in their minds that hold them captive, and the, the philosophies that they abandon when they turn their truth to God. God's word, that's the battle, that's what the battle is. It has to do with God's truth. And so he says that um, these, the weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful for the destruction of these fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought, I love this, captive to the obedience of Christ. All of our thoughts, that's where the, that's where the battle is, is that thought line. We're taking every thought, at least we try to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought we bring and hold it out to him, we try to bring it under his control, under his lordship. Uh, it's really, really important. Paul says in Timothy, uh, not pay, don't pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. Um, it says, uh, have nothing to do with worldly fables, 1 Timothy 4, 7. Uh, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments from men. We don't follow cleverly devised fables. All of these little fables and myths and things like that deal with theories and philosophies, whereas we have the truth of God. And we need to stick to it, read it, know it, grow in it, and let God use it in our hearts and lives. Well, let's pray. We'll pray. Father, thank you for your word, which if we don't read it, it's not going to do us any good. We can't put it under our pillow. 
and absorb the theology there and have it change our lives. We have to read it. And even that is not going to do us any good if we don't obey it. And so I pray that you'll help me help us to profit from the things we've looked at this morning and to take your precious word that you have gone through such labor-intensive sacrifice for us and others, bring it to us. We know that there have been many, many who have given their lives to preserve it. There are some that have been burned at the stake because they did, and yet it is the most valuable thing we possess uh, insofar as a tangible item, and I pray that you'll help us not only to have it, not only to appreciate it, but to read it and study it every day. And uh, we will do as Timothy was counseled by Paul, and that is to preach it, to be ready, instant, in season, out of season, to rebuke and reprove and correct with great uh, patience and instruction, uh, because it's so very important and so much matters, so much hangs in the balance on that. Thank you so much for your mercy and grace. Thank you for this day. We're seeing a lot of turmoil and anxiety because of the virus that's going around us. And yet, you have not lost any sleep over this. Nothing is taking you by surprise. You're not waiting to see what you're going to do tomorrow. You're not trying to find another plan because the first one's not working out. Everything is working according to your time schedule and your plan. I thank you for the security that we enjoy in Jesus Christ. And I thank you for the word that you've given to us that becomes an anchor for us that we can invest our time and our lives into it and have it invest your work in us for all eternity. So I just ask your blessing upon the fellowship here, those that are listening, that you would be honored and glorified in it and in us and through us. And we pray in Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen.